Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Matt Kleiman to the show. Matthew Kleiman is the co-founder and CEO of Cumulus. Prior to co-founding Cumulus, he was the program director at Shell TechWorks. Shell's Skunk Works-style technology center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, focused on developing and deploying new technologies for Shell's capital projects and operating facilities. Before joining Shell, Matt held various commercial positions in the biomedical and aerospace industries. When he isn't working, you can find him enjoying time with his family, skiing, and scuba diving. Matt, how are you doing today? Thank you, Raj. It's great to be here. Matt, I'd like to start with... You're writing books about space. Sure. Um, so I have had a, a pretty varied career, but one thing I've always been fascinated with since I was a kid was space. And I actually went to space camp um, when I was in uh, elementary and middle school down in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, it's just been a fascination of mine. So early in my career, I actually started my career as a corporate lawyer and I was working for an aerospace company. Uh, up here in the Boston area. And I found out that there was a whole field of law called space law that was uh, pretty nascent at the time. This is more than 10 years ago. And I got really interested in it. And I ended up teaching a class at Boston University and saw that there was no book on space law that was less than about 20 years old, because the last time this field was, was, uh, was popular was during the Cold War and the issues between the United States and the Soviet Union. But now that, you know, no more Cold War, but certainly a lot of issues in space, especially as you have a lot more commercial space. So I wrote a textbook myself, and then I was asked uh, by my publisher to write a more um, layperson, general audience version of that. And so I wrote a book called The Little Book of Space Law that just tells all kinds of interesting stories about legal issues in outer space. So can you share maybe two or three things that the general public might not know about space law that might be interesting? Uh, sure. So there's a couple of things. Um, one of the most common questions I get is uh, who owns different parts of outer space? So who owns the moon? Uh, for example, if you had a, a company where to go up there and try to mine the moon and um, and the law is, is actually not clear on it because most laws uh, about space were written during the Cold War when ownership of resources wasn't the major issue. It was preventing nuclear war in outer space. Um, so, but there's, there's been a lot of effort uh, in the United States and other countries to clarify that law. One of the most fun things, I think, is about jur- legal jurisdictions. So on the space, and if you think about the International Space Station, uh, there are different modules that are, were built uh, by different countries, the US, Russia, uh, the European Union, the Japanese Space Agency. Each of those modules operate under the law of that country. 
So you could float through the space station, which is about the size of a football field, and you can go from U.S. jurisdiction to Russian jurisdiction to Japanese jurisdiction. And if you commit a crime, you are subject to the laws of that jurisdiction, depending on where you are. And there's a whole agreement between the parties to the space station about how those issues would be resolved. Thankfully, there have not been any crimes in space that we're aware of and that hasn't been tested, but uh, those are the types of things you have to think about. So who does own the moon? Uh, so the, spa- the, the space treaties say that the moon is the providence of all mankind. That's the, the 1960s era term that was used. Um, so nobody owns the moon by international law, but U.S. law was recently changed a few years ago to say that if somebody extracts resources from a moon, so you take a moon rock, uh, for example, uh, that company has the right to get to have, effectively own it and get the economic benefit of that reason. But that's just U.S. law. That is not agreed international law yet. That's to be tested. It sounds like a very slippery road. It can be. And um, there's actually a great show on Apple TV called For All Mankind, and it's an alternate history of what happens if the Russians beat the U.S. to the moon in 19, in the late 1960s. And they actually start to deal with these questions uh, in a really interesting way about who owns resources and how that will lead to conflict, um, just like it did in prior years of exploration um, when you have private commercial interests driving uh, and way ahead of where the law is because the law takes a while to catch up very often. Speaking of Russian, did you read the news recently about their anti-satellite missile? Yes, that was very disappointing. Um, They actually, uh, the Chinese did something similar back in 2007, where they blew up uh, in a missile test, blew up one of their own defunct satellites. And that caused, I I think it added about, uh, increased the amount of debris in space by about 25%. And right at the altitude of the International Space Station, where it's common for human spacecraft, human occupied spacecraft to operate. And everybody assumed that the major space powers had learned their lesson from that event in 2007, that people didn't realize how bad it would be, but now everybody does. And to imagine that the Russians did that again, knowing that history, knowing that their own people are on the space station, they're a partner there, there are cosmonauts on the space station all the time. And to put them in harm's way like they did is is pretty unbelievable. And not to continue talking about space, but I'm just curious, what do you think about the the recent, I'm going to call it a race, I guess, between Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and SpaceX? I think ultimately it's it's good for uh, it's good for society. So I am obviously a proponent of space exploration. I think it, it benefits humanity to have activity in space, and there are a few reasons, not only economic, but just just inspiring uh, younger generations to go into science and math uh, and engineering fields, whether they work in space or not, um, and just to explore. I think it's it's part of human nature to want to to go further, to extend our boundaries, and um, and so I think it's really good. And uh, for a while, around the time of the space shuttle and a little bit after, uh, the development of space technology really stagnated. We kind of became stuck in low Earth orbit. Uh, it was incredibly expensive to get uh, equipment, cargo, payloads, human and otherwise, into space. And you only had the ultra, ultra wealthy would pay you know, something like $20 million to go to the space station. But with the space race, you know, there, there's an element of it that is 
oh, this is kind of ridiculous, these billionaires just playing with their toys. But they are really doing a lot to drive down the cost uh, of getting to space and the safe, uh, the safety, making it more and more safe to get into space. And I think that's generally a good thing. And um, I think, you know, what, what especially Elon Musk and SpaceX have done to completely transform the launch industry with low cost, reliable access to space uh, for both human and satellites um, is, is, is good for humanity. And I'm, I'm just really excited about it. And perhaps a more broader question and I guess more grounded in beliefs. Do you think we are the only beings out here? Uh, I don't. Um, I, now I, I have no idea whether we have been visited by aliens or not, but given the sheer number of solar systems and galaxies and the number of planets that we are finding all the time in those solar systems and galaxies, I think it is, um, it, it, I, I think it would be pretty arrogant to believe, to think that we are not, that, that there are no, there's no other intelligent life out there that the only time it has evolved is here on Earth, given how, the billions of years and the millions of opportunities life has had to evolve. Uh, now, whether it's intelligent life like we have on Earth for humans, uh, I don't know. But I, I, I would not want to believe, and I find it hard to believe, that we, we are alone. I share your belief for all the same reasons. So, yeah. so coming back to Earth, <laughs> fast forward from your days studying space, writing about space to Cumulus. Yes. Can you share with the audience or give the audience an overview of Cumulus and your role at the organization? Sure. So I am the co-founder and CEO of Cumulus. Um, the story uh, of Cumulus, it's worth spending just, I'll, I'll go through it very quickly, is that... Uh, you can I, take your time. I, okay, sure. Uh, thanks. So uh, I, as I mentioned, I was working at an aerospace company called Draper Laboratory in, uh, in the early 2010s. Uh, shortly after the Deepwater Horizon disaster, a number of oil and gas companies came to Draper and said, we, need, we want to learn from aerospace how to build safe and reliable systems that operate in hostile environments, which the aerospace world, despite some very high profile disasters, um, has gotten very, very good at. Uh, over the last several decades. So we started working with these companies on different projects. And eventually, one of our customers, which was uh, Shell, said to my partner and I, who were leading this effort, uh, we'd like to, uh, this is great what we're doing, but we'd like to, we, to really affect change. We need people to come in-house and start a center uh, in-house that uh, could help us really change the way we, we design and think about uh, large capital projects and think about safety both for people and the environment. And so one thing led to another, and we were hired to start what's now called Shell TechWorks uh, here in Boston with that mission, which is to bring external expertise, um, external to the oil and gas industry, such as from aerospace, uh, into the oil and gas industry and, and help it improve safety and quality and reliability of these systems. Uh, so we did that. And then around 2016, we really started to focus on what eventually became Cumulus, which was this challenge with work that was uh, high volume, mission critical manual work activity. And we saw that across the industry, these types of activities were responsible for 
a disproportionate amount of uh, downtime, of accidents, of rework on job sites, largely because of issues of quality control. The, the work was being done the same way. If you went back in time 30, 40 years, this type of work was not done very differently, uh, very paper-based siloed systems. So we, um, uh, we started working on this in Shell and we developed, we started specifically focused on bolted joint assembly. So a typical oil and gas facility has tens or even hundreds of thousands of bolted joints. Um, in the industry, more than 20% of leaks are because of human error with the assembly and maintenance of these bolted joints. And we said, it's, you know, in this day and age, it's not that it's a physics problem. We know from an engineering perspective how to maintain and assemble a bolted joint, but it's just people are people and people mess up for different reasons. And the systems weren't in place to catch these errors before uh, the work was done. So we developed the first product called the Smart Torque System, which used a, a wrench that had that was sensorized, communicate with a mobile app, and the data went to the cloud that gave a real-time view into who was doing the work, how long it was taking them to do it, and how well it was done. Basically, the term we now use is it acted like a digital foreman uh, looking over the shoulder of the work to just make sure it's done properly. And that had, when we first deployed it, it had just this immediate impact on drastically reducing the number of leaks at these facilities. And so in 2018, we, with the support of Shell, we spun out, we said, this has to be its own company to really grow and thrive and raise capital. So we spun out in 2018 and have been building the Cumulus platform, first starting with bolted joints, uh, but now we've recently expanded it to cover all kinds of mission critical manual activities uh, like welding inspection, pressure testing. Um, and our goal is that we will eventually get to the point in the world where human error is no longer a cause of accidents at industrial job sites. So I have several questions, but I'm going to start with the top. Why the name Cumulus? Uh, so the name Cumulus, because we, we looked at it as uh, it, it had several different meanings. Um, it was actually the name, the internal name of the project that just stuck as we began the company. But it was the idea is to have a cumulative view of all the work activities being done on these job sites. So you imagine building a new plant uh, or just maintaining a plant. You have hundreds or thousands of workers doing all sorts of different things. And that's one of the hardest jobs of an owner or operator or general contractor is just keeping track of who is doing what. And so our view was we want this to be the cumulative data the cumulative view into everything that's going on at a site. And of course, uh, the data is based in the cloud, so it alludes to a cumulus cloud. And then that name just kind of stuck. You know, naming things is, is one of the hardest things you do, uh, whether you know in startups and product development, and often names that are just used without a whole lot of deep thought or market research end up just sticking because uh, they develop, they take on a, a life of their own. And you mentioned smart torque. Mm -hmm. Is that a tool? Like, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm imagining a wrench with sensors on it. But can you expand on that? Sure. It the, the smart torque is a system. So there's three components to the system. One of which is the tool. The tools are actually commercially available. All of the major uh, tool manufacturers um, are now putting connectivity into their devices. You can go to Home Depot uh, and uh, or Lowe's, just to be fair to both. And you can buy a tool and a, the tool manufacturer will give you an iPhone or Android app that will talk to your tool. Now, for a homeowner, 
that ends up being, it's kind of a gimmick and maybe you use it to, for some interesting measurements or for security or inventory management. But our idea was take this data coming off the tools and rather than a one-to-one relationship, aggregate it all together to give that view of the job site. So the tools are one piece of it, but we're not a hardware company. We use we have partners who are the tool manufacturers uh, that build these tools. Uh, what we make is the other parts of the system. One is the mobile app that the workers and inspectors use in the field, and that's for iOS and Android. It's available in both app stores. And then we make the control center where all the data comes in and we provide analytics and reporting around the work activity based on the data we're getting from the field. Now, when you and I were speaking offline, we kind of both shared the idea that what you're doing is extremely needed, but in some sense, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but it's boring, meaning that mm-hmm. the idea of torquing joints or inspecting welding or pressure testing, it's not bright and shiny. It's not the next, you know, the next drone. Right. So knowing that, how have you seen customers either accept or perhaps even push back regarding these? Uh, great question. And, and exa- you're exactly right. As, as we were talking about offline, there is a huge amount of attention in technology circles around uh, leak detection uh, and accident, you know, uh, at, at oil and gas facilities. But there's less uh, focus on the boring part of actually preventing the leaks from happening in the first place. And that's where we come in. Um, so the, the, the reception that we get is it, you get you have to get once you get in front of a customer and they have this aha moment of, hey, this is something that I've been doing with paper uh, or with a spreadsheet before, and wow, this can save me a huge amount of time and really improve the work we're doing. That that's what our goal is to get to, and and that we've gotten very good at getting there with potential customers uh, once we can see them. But you do have some traditional resistance to change in these more established industries that are not used to digitizing the work that they're doing. And so we, we do see that. We do encounter that. There, there's just cultural resistance. Um, and hey, we've been doing it this way for 30 years. Why should we change how we're doing it? We definitely see that. Uh, one thing we were always concerned about is resistance among the workers themselves. And, and that actually doesn't happen all that much. And there's a few reasons for that. One, we've done a lot in the design of the system to make it actually help the workers do, do what they do better. And we're very transparent about the data that we're collecting um, from these tools and from the mobile app. We make it available to the workers just as we make it available to our customers. So it's transparent. It doesn't have the feel of you know, sensors we're putting on people's bodies or anything like that. And then most people, no matter where they are in the world, are generally used to using smartphones in their daily lives today. So using a smartphone in their job uh, is not the same leap it might have been a decade ago. The resistance uh, to change more comes from uh, managers or people whose job it is for to enforce quality because by using our system, they're necessarily either directly or indirectly saying what we're doing today is not good enough and therefore we need to change. And that's where human nature can make people uh, resist that change. And just for the audience, can you give 
an overview or perhaps a high level of the magnitude of this problem that you're addressing? Sure. So if you just think about bolted joint, leaks from bolted joints in oil and gas, and a bolted joint would be, you know, you imagine a refinery or a chemical plant and you have all the piping, wherever different piping comes together, that's typically a bolted joint. You have some that are welded, but more typically a bolted joint. Leaks from these bolted joints each year is equi- releases the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as about 36 million cars on the road. That's about one-fifth of the cars in the United States. The same amount of greenhouse gas- gases are released just from uh, leaking bolted joints. And again, the, the, the joints leak not because from an engineering perspective, we don't know how to build them, but because there's a mistake that's made when these are put together. Um, is human error. So, so that's the, the, the scale. Another way to think about it is a, a typical facility loses about $1.8 million a year just in downtime. That just, just to put some dollars and cents on it, downtime when they have to shut a system down because there's a leak. And that doesn't calculate the impact uh, or the cost of safety or environmental impact. That's just the cost to the operator of having to shut down the facility for a few hours or maybe a day or two to fix it. So this is absolutely, you know, so stopping these leaks is absolutely a tool that society can use to, in our, in our drive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to comply with the methane reduction targets that governments are setting. Um, But also as a way for our customers to save, to save money. You know, I was going to mention that too, just COP26 just finished um, last week, I believe, and I think there was a global pledge to reduce methane by 30% from 2020 levels. So I see what you're doing going hand in hand with that uh, pledge. Absolutely. Uh, it's If we could stop all these leaks, it's the equivalent of converting a fifth of the cars, as I mentioned, the statistic in the United States from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And we have to do all of the above, but um, but this has to be part of it. And and it's as, as we talked about before, it's not sexy. It is a, a, it's boring and in the weeds of of work. But it's just as important as as other things that we do to combat climate change. So you know, you mentioned it being we both mentioned it being kind of boring work, mm-hmm. foundational. You mentioned writing books about space earlier in your career. Sure. What's the why? Why is this important to you? So it's important to me because, so remember uh, when I was working in, in aerospace and we first started to get to know folks in the energy industry, there's a lot of stereotypes that people have about, about the industry and whether the industry wants to improve or not. And, and my experience is it very much wants to improve um, from an a environmental impact and safety impact perspective. And people are trying, and these companies are trying very hard to do it. But you would go, I would see, and especially as I got inside the industry more, everybody was focused on the the sexy, the let's make everything augmented reality. Let's let's bring all these sensors onto these sites. And I looked around, and and my co-founders as well, and we looked around and said. You know, you 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 have to walk before you can run. It's you can't bring in AR, VR, and all these other really exciting things people want to do without getting the basics right and going back to first principles of how 
we are we as an industry are doing work. And it's not, as you can see, using the space analogy, it's not rocket science what we're doing. It's very hard from a cultural change perspective. There's a lot of issues we have about working in old facilities full of, you know, that are basically giant Faraday cages that that make communication hard and a lot of things we've had to solve there. Um, but the industry has to get back to first principles and, 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 and make sure that we're using the best available technology to do the jobs right in the first place before we can start to do these much more advanced things around data analytics and AR, VR. I mean, we saw so many times uh, companies large and small would come to us and say, we have this great data analytics solution. Uh, all you have to do is give us all your data and we're going to generate huge amounts of value for you by whatever analytics uh, engine or AI engine that they had. And the problem is there was no data. They're, they're, these are older facilities and there's very often not even, they're not models. There's not connectivity. Um, record keeping can be very poor. And we saw that the, where the industry was going when it was talking about digitalization was it was looking at the sexy stuff. It was looking at the stuff that if, it, if the world was perfect and connectivity was perfect and everything else, yes, you can do it. But we really saw this opportunity to get back to first principles and have a huge impact on uh, quality, safety, and environmental performance. And, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Why is environmental performance important to you? Well, one is just a human uh, and a, a member of society. I know that we, I, I very much believe in climate change uh, and the science of climate change. And we have to be doing as a society everything we can to, to stop it. And part of it is converting to electric vehicles and things like that. But other things are preventing the, these mundane emission sources that, uh, that add up. They may seem small individually, but they add up because they're happening all over the world. So that's part of it. Um, but two is safety. Uh, it, it's not just about releasing methane and other gases into the atmosphere. It's, uh, it's the safety of workers. And I have seen personally incidents where you have a leak, uh, you have a fire at a plant, and, and people get hurt. And, and that is, and these are all avoidable accidents. It's not something that has to happen. It's not something that is just a, a, a danger that's associated with the job. Um, and if we can, in our way, make these the work safer and make sure people go home with, you know, without injuries at the end of each day so that they can go be with their families, um, that's really meaningful. And we just didn't see when we were inside, we, we just didn't see the industry and the supply chain focusing on these, as we've used several times, these boring problems uh, enough and in a way that will actually uh, make them better. And that's what we're trying to do. Now, earlier you mentioned walking before running. What have you learned on your journey at Cumulus? Uh, so <laughs> a lot. I, I feel like I, I learned something new. Uh, I learned something new every day. Um, on a personal level, I would say uh, you know, before starting Cumulus, I I never held a sales role before, and and now I'm selling all the time, whether it's to customers, to investors, to job candidates. Uh, I'm even selling right now. <laughs> so, uh, so that's from a, a personal growth perspective. Of you know, I had managed people before, but um, 
but d- doing this job with a startup is, has been a huge learning experience for me. And then from a business perspective, um, I think learning how, how to design a system that makes workers not only accept the technology, but be e- eager to use it and helping them do their job better has been a, a learning journey for us. Um, most people uh, just assume that workers are going to resist new technology. Um, and, and the reason for that is that most enterprise technology is actually pretty poorly designed and makes the job of these workers in the field more difficult rather than less difficult. And so learning how to build products that, that appeal to workers and makes their jobs better has been a journey over the last few years. What have you learned about selling that you didn't know before? Uh, pretty much, pretty, pretty much everything, but a, a lot of, you know, how to, how to position products, how, how to listen more than I talk. And I know, you know, on a podcast environment, my, my job is to talk and tell our story and have the conversation with you. But in a sales role, so many people go in with, with whatever their pitch is. And this is whether you're selling to a customer or an investor and in a company or, or a job candidate, all those categories. Um, learning how to listen and, and be an active listener for what whoever you're selling to wants and, and using, using that to, be, to better either create, be able to position your solution for them or sometimes say, look, I don't think this is the right fit based on what you want and be able to say that and be comfortable saying it because it doesn't do anybody any good if, if you just push somebody, something on somebody and, and have some magic that gets them to say yes and then it doesn't actually help them at the end of the day i had a mentor many years ago tell me that um, selling is about listening and marketing is about talking (laughs) exactly that's uh, that's exactly right so you know podcasts like this this is for you know marketing from my perspective but this isn't selling and i I think your mentor is 100 percent correct and that's a very valuable lesson that I would have liked to learn earlier and have a mentor uh, that that helped, but it's something I've learned over time. So let's move into the future. Mm -hmm. It's 2030. If Newsweek, Fortune, Fast Company, Picture Publication were to write a headline about Cumulus, what would you like it to read? I would like it. Oh, that's a good question. I I would like it to, I don't know if I could be, have a pithy headline, but what I would like the article to be about is how we played an instrumental role in preventing and making it so that human mistakes no longer cause accidents that harm people in the environment and that large industrial facilities have become safer and cleaner because of the work we've done and because of the technology we've developed. You know, I really like that sentiment because I feel like often companies like yours are the unsung heroes. We go through life on a daily basis. Everything just seems to work until it doesn't. Yep. And earlier in our conversation, you did mention the deep water horizon. I'm just personally curious, what was the, what was the reason for that accident back in 2010, I believe? Sure. There, there were a lot of, there were a number of different failures. So when you have major accidents like that, whether it's oil and gas or an aircraft an airline crash or or something, it's usually not just one thing that causes it. It's error compounded on error compounded on error, usually some sort of mechanical failure combined with uh, a human, humans not acting, not reacting to that failure in the right way. There is 
actually a great the, the government there was a, a government commission that put out a report about the Deepwater Horizon that I would recommend people look at. You could you know Google U.S. government Deepwater Horizon uh, accident report that was written in a very readable way and and is really interesting. But basically, it, that's what happened. They they had a a, a pre, what's called a pressure kick, which caused uh, which happens sometimes when you're when you're drilling wells and oil and gas. And then there was just a series of bad decisions that were made by a number of different people and different companies that were involved. Ultimately, it's known as the the BP disaster because it was a BP rig, but there were contractors involved uh, in the cementing, in doing the drilling, in reacting to it, that one bad decision compounded on another bad decision and, and the technology wasn't there to to help uh, counteract the human error. And that's why you, you, you had the problem. I appreciate you sharing that. Now, my last question, and this could be professional or personal, mm-hmm. but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, what would it be? Uh, so one of my favorite posters that I've had on my wall since college is, is a picture of it's four fighter jets in formation. And the, 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 the motto on the poster is lead, follow, or get out of the way. And I've always tried to keep that in mind in any organization that I've been part of. Sometimes we need to be leaders. Sometimes it's better to let other people lead and just be a supportive follower. Um, sometimes being a leader means saying, you know, disagreeing with what's happening at the organization. It doesn't mean just be a lemming. But don't be the person who only gets in the way of change. Um, the, the world is changing incredibly fast and we all have our part to play in, in adapting to that change and just know, you know, be a leader, be a supportive follower, but you just don't want to be the person who gets in the way. And, and that's the advice that I, that I've always taken, uh, for myself and that I impart to my team as well. Uh, and my expectations for the team uh, at Cumulus and, and every other organization I've been privileged to lead. Well, Matt, I appreciate that. And I think lead, follow, or get out of the way is a great place to end. Appreciate your time today. Look forward to watching the continued growth of Cumulus and catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Raj. This was a great conversation. Thank you again for having me and look forward to uh, catching up again. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.